Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world, welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today, I'm really excited to have as a guest, Oliver Sinclair Franklin. Oliver is both my colleague in Philadelphia as well as a new friend. We've met this year because I joined the consulate in New York as head of communications and got to know Oliver because he is in our quote unquote patch, which is Philadelphia yeah. among other states. Oliver is the honorary British Consul General there. He is also a very successful careerist in finance and public service. Oliver, welcome to The Caring Economy. Thank you so much, Toby. It's really an honor to be here. I can't even begin to capture all the wonderful brands and work that you've done in your career. So I'm going to ask you, as we do all of our guests, uh, Oliver, to give us a little overview, a synopsis of your career journey from um, you know, from a little kid growing up to where you are today. Right. Well, I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland. I'm the son of a minister, sort of gave me a heads up in terms of public, uh, public speaking and engaging uh, with the public. I went to Lincoln University, the oldest black mm -hmm. college in the country in uh, Pennsylvania. I ended up at Oxford University at Balliol College, Oxford, which broadened my, broadened my world to a very large degree. And um, I, I have had a very varied career. When I was coming up in the 60s, the idea was to major in stuff that was useless. So people wanted to major in ancient history and you know Sanskrit. And uh, I did economics undergrad. And when I went up to Oxford, I did economics, but I really spent most of my time studying ancient history, modern history, philosophy, you know, very broad. And uh, I was very fortunate to come to Philadelphia and to start working as assistant to the president of the University of Pennsylvania. That led to being engaged in a political campaign for the first black mayor. Um, I worked for a year and I became deputy city representative, which is a deputy cabinet post. And I handle arts and culture and international, which was really my focus. And from there, I went into the investment business, the institutional investment business. Highlight was Fidelity Investments in Boston. And then uh, I took the money I made from that and took a, a flyer and uh, worked with some colleagues to, to create the first investment, U.S. investment firm, at least in mutual funds in South Africa. And this was right after Mandela had gotten out of jail and, and there was a lot of excitement. Mm -hmm. So we ran that company for four years and uh, was eventually uh, acquired by a bigger company, which was the plan. I came back and became head of the international house. I was mm -hmm. gonna stay two years, stay five. And then I went back into the business as vice chairman of a firm that handled the digital side of, of investment firms. At, which was acquired by a French company. And now I'm happy to say I am a proud senior advisor and board sitter. <laughs> so uh, I'm working very excitingly with a West Coast hedge fund that uses machine learning um, in its investment decisions. And it's really exciting. Mm -hmm. And uh, I serve on the board of um, a board of a NatWest Bank, which mm -hmm. is a uh, advisory board, the largest bank in the UK, and, uh, and a couple of biotech companies. But um, that's just a career, but my passion has always been to have a career 
which combines with your passion. And I created something years ago called the City Fellows Program mm -hmm. for minorities to have an opportunity to work in British investment banks. And we did that for 15 to 20 years. And we never asked for any foundation money. We funded it ourselves. And mm -hmm. self-reliance, particularly among African-American people, is very important. So I would fund it the first year, second year, people would get in the program, we'd figure out how much it costs. Pro-rate people, you pay up your bit. And as a result, we were highly successful. In fact, three managing directors of Goldman Sachs came through this program and we were run from the bottom up. In other words, people in the program ran the program. Mm -hmm. So I'm most, most pleased with that program. Yeah. Well, uh, I'd like to go back to the 60s with you, and we'll go chronologically because what you just shared is so fantastic. Um, so here you are, Lincoln University, yeah. HBC, the original HBCU. Correct. Uh, historically Black College and Universities. Correct. Which was good to you, I believe. Oh, right? absolutely. And then, absolutely. You, and then you win a Woodrow Wilson Fellow. Correct. Which is not nothing, right? So no, it was a shock and wonderful, and it came in U.S. dollars, so... <laughs> At that time, that was key. But what was it like to go to Oxford then as a black man in the tumultuous 60s? I mean, you were very much pioneering. Yeah. Well, I had never functioned on a global scale. Mm -hmm. At Lincoln University, the oldest, black country, the oldest black college in the country, Thurgood Marshall, Langston Hughes, were full of black people who were leaders in the black community. But at that time, the most you could aspire to was to be mayor of a city or a congressman. The concept of being president of the United States was far beyond our imagination. Mm -hmm. I get to Oxford and for the first time, I am exposed to white American students, mainly Rhodes Scholars. And I was shocked with their worldview, how they viewed the world and how all of them had a plan Hmm. that they were going to execute. I guess that's part of your Rhodes Scholar interview. What's your plan? <laughs> and I was shocked. Everyone was very kind, very nice, but uh, I had never really engaged one-on-one -on -one with uh, Rhodes Scholars from Harvard and Yale and Princeton, and as it was in those days, all male. But I found the British people and the Africans uh, very interesting because this was the first time I was in an environment where everyone thought I was highly intelligent because everyone there was clearly the best at what they did. And I was uh, very uh, lucky to be in an environment where generally I was not judged first by my color. Mm -hmm. And uh, what shocked me about Britain was no residential segregation. I went to a working class pub and there were working class white people, working class black people. And I'm getting nervous because I think, my God, if these working class black people get drunk, they're going to like call me names. <laughs> but and then I began to realize that in our country, the big stigma on us is residential segregation created by the federal government. Mm. That was a big shock. But Oxford. And, and I say to any student, get out of this country. Yep. University of Thailand, 
Mm -hmm. University of South Africa, it doesn't matter where you go. When you're young and your whole life is ahead of you, getting out of this country or any country is the best way to grow. And it really helped me immensely. That's music to my ears. I think uh, whether it's through study abroad or military service, that mobility creates social mobility. And you meet and you meet uh, different kind of people. I'm living in a world in this country where I don't know Trumpsters. Mm -hmm. And that is extremely worrying to me Mm -hmm. that I don't have a friend that thinks Donald Trump is God. Mm-hmm. But millions of people do. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, there's something wrong with this picture. I'm supposed to be cosmopolitan, you know, and very informed. Yet I have, I don't know anybody I can have a beer with who can explain to me why they think Trump is the man. Yeah. And, 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 that's, and that's a real disservice to me. It's a real disservice to the country. Well, maybe that's something to work on. I can have a few siblings I can introduce you to. <laughs> Send them along. I'd love to have a drink. <laughs> Not my dear brother, Troy, who has that great Philadelphia. Uh, oh, I'll go down and chat. I know. <laughs> like my, so, that's um, very funny. So I know from my own study abroad experiences, and you may or may not know, at one point early in my career, um, when I was studying at Penn, uh, I was a study abroad advisor. So I used to send Penn students to study abroad down in Bennett Hall. So right. I'm a believer in it. Yeah. Right. Um, so. Good. But in that process and in my own study abroad, I learned that the re-entry process is sometimes harder than the going abroad. And I wonder when you came back from Oxford, if that was a shock for you. Well, it was, but I think it was eased because my father put me on a lecture tour. Hmm. And in the black church uh, in those days, you would have Friday night programs. So what happened was when I came back, it was like, you know, you're going to this church, this church, this church, and, and they want to learn about what you learned. Mm-hmm. And what that did, it eased the process because I had to articulate it. And it made me realize during the time I was articulating the project, the, the process, the impact, the impact it had on me, because people were very interested in What's it like to go abroad? What's it like in England? Do they, you know, are they, as you know, it always comes down to in the Black community, are they really prejudiced against us? Mm-hmm. Um, so that eased it because I had to articulate mm-hmm. um, how I felt. So um, then you you make your way into government. Yeah. Uh, which, which mayor was that? Was that? It was, it was Wilson Good. Wilson Good. Yeah, he was there when I lived there. Yeah, yeah he was the first Black mayor. Yep. And um, he, um, you know, we had an interesting administration. I worked very hard for a year uh, to get him elected uh, mayor. And and my father told me a wonderful thing. He said, if you're going to work for him, charge him a dollar and make him sign the dollar. And I'm like, charge him a dollar. I need money. He said, well, if you want a job, if you want a job in the administration, you don't charge them anything. And that was, and I mean, I suffered during that time, but it was a very, very good advice because if things didn't work out during the campaign, I could always leave it and, and be on good terms, but it did work out and, and we negotiated a position. So it, 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 was, it was very wise advice on the use of being paid and the use of 
volunteering with passion to, shall we say, get a position yeah. if, it's, if, if it's successful. Um, I, I, at another time, we'll come back to that because I'm very involved with uh, cultural institutions here in New York. Yeah, uh, yeah. Paid, unpaid internships is a real- Oh, absolutely. And yeah. institutions are finding ways now to make, uh, to, to not only pay these interns, but give them the access to both make some money, but also build their careers and their opportunities. Um, so when you, uh, when you were at that period, then you, you mentioned going into the mutual fund in South Africa after that. Uh, what do you think of Nelson Mandela's legacy today in the state of South Africa? It's, I can remember that era so well when he came out of prison and became president and so much good came with it, but it seems that, us, that South Africa still struggles in many ways. It is, South Africa is going to struggle for a long time until they deal with the issue of finding jobs for people. Mm -hmm. And the way the apartheid, and, and it is a legacy of the apartheid government because the apartheid government was, was structured around tribes. Mm -hmm. The Afrikaners were a tribe, the Jews were a tribe, the English, the British were a tribe, Zulus, Klosas, Vendas, Everything was Transkai, everything was a tribe. And so everyone was essentially competing against each other. But because it's a very narrow economy driven by mining, extraction of minerals from the economy, it's very difficult to create sort of high-tech jobs where people need skills and jobs for the future so mm -hmm. you can get people employed. And they're struggling with it. And, um, you know, they've had the last um, six weeks has been very tense um, with violence um, taking place around Jacob Zuma, who was a former president who was convicted and sentenced to prison. Now, we can't imagine such a thing happening in the United States with a former president, yeah. but at least the South Africans have a constitution that they followed. And I think it's the first time on the African continent that an ex-president has been tried and actually sentenced to prison. So I am cautiously optimistic about South Africa. And I urge any young people who really want to get into an exciting business to go to Africa mm. because there are so many opportunities there and you'll be, and as a young person, you'll learn how to negotiate all the different business cultures that exist, and you can become very successful, and at the same time, do an awful lot of good. So I'm still optimistic yeah. about the future there. I uh, had a, a young intern when I was at Christie's, Marin, who's been in South Africa the past two years with her young yeah. and she just came back for the vaccine actually yeah weeks ago I saw her and she was just beaming I mean it's yeah not only has it been great for her and her family career-wise but she's also using it as a, an, a period to explore that whole part of the world so and and the people are you know in spite of the fact they all have political violence the people are on an individual level very kind to you very well, kind. There once and hope to go back. Um, yeah. So, so let's stick with the co this concept of corporate social responsibility. Yeah. I know you live it and breathe it. Uh, yeah. We'll talk a little bit about your NatWest appointment, but more broadly, can you give me a sense of your views on the role of business in society? Well, I spend some of my time uh, talking to CEOs about what I see is happening. Number one, 
Gen Z and the millennials in two years will compose 75% of the workforce. This is the first time in our history that a different demographic has massively taken over our workforce. Now, CEOs are going to have to get adjusted to it. First thing they're gonna to have to understand is work from home is here to stay. Mm -hmm. And they've got to get adjusted to the fact that many people that they knew are going to be applying for jobs are going to want to have a varied work week, whether they come in for two days a week or, or, or something. And the second key point is social justice is key. Mm -hmm. The old days when I was when I was in corporate, we didn't talk about politics. You know, politics was outside of the gates. Now, Gen Z and, X and, and the millennials, first thing they want to know is what are the values of your company? Mm -hmm. And if those values don't comport with my own, I'm not interested in lending you my skill set mm -hmm. um, to make your company successful. And the third thing I try to tell uh, CEOs is people today live in a world of constant messaging. Oh, four years ago, I'm in the gym. I mean, I still go. I don't know what good it does me, but I go. <laughs> and I was surprised at the number of people there who in between workouts would grab their phones. And finally, I said to, to I guess, the guy at the desk, I said, everybody is using their phones. And he looked up from his because he was texting <laughs> some friends to figure out where to go to dinner. And he said, oh, yeah, you know, we, we're just in constant contact. So I'm trying to explain to CEOs, when you see these kids on their little phones talking, it's not that they're ignoring their work, but they are just communicating. And if you want to be successful in communicating with this workforce, you've got to be mm -hmm. in constant communication. And the other thing I try to explain is people today want objective metrics for measuring their performance. The day of cobbling up to the boss behind around the water cooler mm -hmm. is over. These folks want to know, how am I going to be uh, viewed? How am I going to be judged? What's the matrix and criteria? Mm -hmm. And I will meet or exceed that. Mm -hmm. That's entirely new for my generation of people who been running companies the old-fashioned way, come in, let's have a handshake. So I think CEOs have to get adjusted to what's coming rather than in the old day, making sure everyone got adjusted to your culture. Mm -hmm. So corporate culture is going to change. And the ones that change are going to be here in 20 years. And the ones that don't will be bought by companies that have changed. Mm -hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, again today on The Caring Economy, we have Oliver Sinclair Franklin joining us. He is the Honorary British Consul in Philadelphia. He is a storied executive in finance as well as in public service. I want to ask you, Oliver, about uh, building on the corporate social responsibility point about the Sattel Institute there in Philadelphia. Can you uh, tell us, this is an organization, as I understand it, that helps CEOs and business executives embrace this concept of responsibility. Um, Ed, Ed Sattel is 84. He's highly successful. He has been a corporate guy who has always given a high percentage 
of company profits to charitable goods. He lived it, he's breathed it. He decided to form an institute affiliated with the University of Pennsylvania, your alma mater, mm -hmm. um, to really bring corporate CEOs in to talk about corporate responsibility. Now, there are three points. The first point is, how do you build a cadre of professionals in corporate America that focus on it so that it's a professional uh, position? Mm -hmm. Second, um, how do you then build on that to prove or demonstrate that corporate responsibility impacts the bottom line? And third, how do you then continue to spread this idea amongst your colleagues like Young Presidents Association? Mm -hmm. Because if you don't have corporate responsibility today, you aren't gonna have a talent pool mm -hmm. that you need for all of your, you wanna hire a CFO, that CFO wants to know what your values are. Mm -hmm. You want to hire someone uh, that's a hot shot in a particular field, digital. They want to know, well, can I take a day off or can I get five days a week mm -hmm. to work for a hunger program? Or are we going to sponsor a run to support Alzheimer's or children's mm -hmm. diseases? People in corporate America, CEOs, have to be open to this rather than saying, let me think about it. They've got to embrace it wholeheartedly, be out there with that t-shirt and cheering people on. That's the new world now. And, yeah. to, and to tell Institute is one of the leaders, if not the leader in this field. And that uh, Satel Institute is active nationwide, not just in Philadelphia. No, it's right now, it's just in Philadelphia. And you can just go to satelinstitute.org mm -hmm. and really see all the various programs. Mm -hmm. Ed, Ed would like to replicate it, but he needs people in other cities that are going to take it on and make it happen. He, he believes in um, servant leadership from the bottom up. Mm -hmm. So right now, we're pretty much in the Philadelphia area. We have quarterly CEO meetings, interesting speakers. We have research that's, that's being conducted by Penn on corporate social responsibility. Mm -hmm. And when you see the research coming out, how it impacts on your company, how it impacts on your profitability, it's very, very impressive. We'll have to get Ed on this show as well at some point. Oh, that would be fabulous, fabulous. So uh, sticking with the private sector, let's jump to your latest appointment to Nat West, the huge UK-based financial yeah. sector. And you yeah. joined an advisory council there, particularly yeah. focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Well, Nat West is the largest bank in the UK, 50,000 employees. Uh, I think they've got like 30% of the retail market. I'm a little more, a little less, but which is a huge number. And what I find interesting as an American serving on this equity and inclusion board, in this country, we think Black, Latino. When I sit around the boardroom there, they're thinking Afro-Caribbean, African, Pakistani, Indian, Hong Kong, Chinese, mm -hmm. Nepalese. Mm -hmm. And they're thinking of the immigrants who were part of the empire who came. So the challenge with the bank is getting the research to find out where the challenges are. We know that black people in Britain need wealth creation. 
We know that Indians as a group are pretty much a professional class in the Pakistanis, they've got businesses. Um, the Chinese, they've got businesses. What they need now is figuring out ways to broaden access uh, to UK society. And the bank has really made an effort to have a theme like come as you are. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to the bank talking to a, uh, a bank officer with dreadlocks. Mm. Can you imagine going Not to JP Morgan <laughs> or, or Bank of America? No. You, you know, you want to get a loan, a, a construction loan, and there's a black guy, beautifully <laughs> done, professionally done with dreadlocks. Sure. So I see it as uh, very challenging. They are not as structured as U.S. corporations are in terms of understanding and moving forward this whole idea of equity and inclusion. But it's a learning experience for me because it broadens what I'm thinking about for equity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. And they're big on sexual orientation. There is, you know, a whole segment of gay folks that work at the bank and programs they need. So it's interesting, probably because of this concept of empire. This, I mean, I know we're going through a big historical interpretation of empire, but however you look at it, it created a certain cosmopolitanness. We can argue about, you know, whether it was good or bad, but it creates a certain cosmopolitanness that I find when I'm sitting around the boardroom table at a place like NatWest. Well, I value that concept of come as you are, right? Yeah, yeah. That really addresses the unintended message that we put out sometimes. We say we care, but it doesn't necessarily show. But if you're, for example, a black person going into that NatWest office and you see this gentleman with dreadlocks, you probably feel like, oh, this person sees me, right? Yeah, exactly. And also, I think I want to do business with this bank. Because they have allowed this person. Now, one thing you have to assume when you see a black guy with dreadlocks or or black woman with, you know, dreadlocks or however, first you're shocked if if you're an American and you wonder, oh, are they qualified? But Mm. one thing you can be sure of is Nat West. If they're sitting at that desk, they are totally qualified because that bank has a system of consistently training people mm-hmm. all the time. And so everyone is sharp, focused, constantly going to renewal programs, constantly going to seminars where the latest program, the latest research. So it really focuses. And once you have competencies uh, in people, they can come as they are and you know they're not gonna show up naked. I mean that metaphorically. Yes. But you know they're not going to show up naked. Yes. Come as you and, also, and you can build on those uh, layers. Exactly. And, exactly. And have career advancement. So yeah. uh, let's stick with this concept of empire for a second. Uh, and you're an OBE, Order of the British Empire. Tell our listeners, what does that mean? Well, there is no empire anymore. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, one of the things about monarchy and, and one of the things about the British is they have these honors that the queen gives out. Now, everyone, when I received an OBE in America, they wanted to know how much went with it. (laughs) And when I say it's an honor, they say, yeah, but was it five? Was it 10,000? Was it 15,000? 
I said, no, it's just three, three initials behind my name. But um, these honors are given out uh, to people that have done extraordinary work in their view. I'm not saying it's in my view. In their view, uh, to Britain, and 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 I was involved in um, when I was at Fidelity Investment, bringing really significant investment into the UK, plus the various programs I've done, say for Black Brits mm -hmm. and others in the UK. And uh, I'm happy to report that the system has changed. When I got mine 25 years ago, you literally couldn't apply. You know, there was all this hush hush and a lot of palace politics. And then you get a call saying, would you accept it if the queen offered it? And you're like, oh, yes. No one ever said, I'll get back to you tomorrow. <laughs> uh, but I'm happy to say that they've democratized mm. uh, honors now and various people can apply uh, to receive an honor. So being an OBE is uh, is is quite an honor it gets a lot of respect um in the uk i think i get a better table i'm not sure but it does uh give a lot of respect to people that you've done something that has benefited the society yep. and to that extent uh i'm very proud to be an ob well it is quite an accomplishment yeah to you yeah. i i'm involved in a process now with a colleague and or a, a a nominee and it is an incredibly diverse candidate and someone who I think is incredibly worthy of such an honor but as you've noted it's her majesty who will decide well uh again congratulations thank on you thank also you very sticking much. with the concept of empire uh, one of the projects you and I get to work on now together which I find incredibly thrilling is involving your um, one of your alma maters Oxford Balliol College and uh, the Philadelphia public school system and the American uh, the Museum of the American Revolution correct correct um, looking at slave trade and yes. its role in the college's history so yes tell our listeners a little bit about it well, I went to Balliol College, the oldest college at Oxford, 1263, and the oldest college in the English-speaking world on the same site, which is interesting. And uh, we had a professor there that did a magnificent book on Toussaint Louverture called, called Black Spartacus. So if you want to learn about the Haitian Revolution, get Black Spartacus. And so we decided that we should use that book as the template to do a history on the college and slavery. And it's amazing how the college embraced it. I mean, they weren't major, major players in the slave trade, but like every institution, they got the residual from the slave trade. Mm -hmm. uh, but they had a lot of uh, members of the college who were abolitionists too. So we want to tell the whole story. So we did an exhibition which opened, um, which is open now um, at the college on, on the slave trade during the age of revolution. We're doing a 50 minute film um, on the exhibition. But what's really exciting is, and what gives this thing legs is a two year teacher seminar on teaching the transatlantic slave trade. Mm -hmm. with Balliol College and teachers in Southern England and the Museum of the American Revolution in Philadelphia and teachers in the Philadelphia area. 
teaching the slave trade in the United States has a lot of issues. Black parents get freaked out. They say, you're not teaching it right. You're traumatizing my child. White parents get freaked out because they say, you're teaching my kids they're terrible and that they're racist and, and all of this. Well, this is noise. And most of it is the insecurities of parents, mm -hmm. okay? If it's taught right, kids can deal with it. I mean, they really can. Mm -hmm. So, but what we need is an opportunity for teachers to spend a couple of years talking about strategies for teaching it and mm -hmm. having uh, teachers in England who are looking at it from the empire perspective and teachers from the States who are looking at it as a foundational element in the creation of the United States together will make for an interesting conversation. Uh, it'll go for two years, the end of June 22, teachers will go to England, spend a week doing whatever they do. And in June 23, teachers from the UK will come to Philadelphia. And the hope is that this will begin the process of helping teachers be comfortable mm -hmm. teaching the transatlantic slave trade. Well, as you know, we've, um, we've been fortunate to bring in our mutual friend, Steve Ellis from Viacom CBS. A lifesaver. Really helping us with the strategy around yeah. marketing and promoting it. And yeah. I think it's, it's because A, the subject matter matters, and B, leaders, whether they're in business or nonprofits or in education, are looking for tools and ways to deal with this really tricky subject. And see, I think, um, you know, what great brands to put it in a really, you know, maybe not the most tactful way, but Oxford, Balliol, Philadelphia Public Schools, yeah. Museum yeah. of the American Revolution. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, a, it's a good bet, right? <laughs> it's a very good bet. And all of them have quote standing um, as, as you might say. And we need to, as a foundational element, uh, deal with slavery and mm -hmm. in America. And it's really important in the founding the largest asset in this country uh, at the civil war was enslaved Africans. That was the largest asset. With the slave trade, you finally get something called in personal insurance, because before you couldn't insure, insure yourself, but insurance started insuring enslaved Africans. And over time, people said, oh, why don't we give ourselves life insurance? So, so many institutions that we have today started uh, as a response to the transatlantic slave trade. Oliver, I have one last question and it's, it's kind of a, a broad one. Um, so answer it however you would like, but yeah. as you think about um, race, race relations in this country through your lifetime, um, how has it evolved? What's, what's it like today? What's consistent and what's changed dramatically, do you think? Um, my colleagues, many of my academic colleagues are writing books now. I'm talking about African-Americans saying it's worse. I disagree. Mm -hmm. I think that if you look at the politics, which in many ways drives policy, I know voter suppression, not teaching uh, black history in schools, all that's driven by politics. But if you look at what's going on with people on the ground, 
I've never seen a more integrated society than I've ever seen. The big shock for me was home like everybody else on my sofa during the pandemic and seeing thousands of white people out in the streets protesting George Floyd. Mm -hmm. Now that's a seminal event in America. And as a veteran of civil rights demonstrations, if we had 20% white people joining us, we thought we had made a one a victory. I saw demonstrations where 80% of the people were white. And this Gen Z generation, this millennial generation has had more interpersonal contact across class and across race than any in the history of this country. Mm -hmm. So I'm very optimistic in spite of the political noise that we have and the white supremacy and all of this. I am very optimistic on interpersonal level. Look at all the interracial couples you see on TV, the interracial couples you see in magazines on the New York Times, um, uh, the New York Times wedding list. You know, years ago, I call people, hey, look here, interracial couple in the New York Times. Now it's like, yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's, that's an indication of how the institutional noise is on one level. But the real social change has to take place on the individual level. And that's where I am very optimistic. Yeah, I share that optimism. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank again today's guest, Oliver Sinclair Franklin. He is fun. The, <laughs> the honorary British Consul General in Philadelphia, a friend, a colleague. And um, I look forward to having you back on perhaps after we have the um, slave trade exhibition. Oh, that would be fun. All right, Toby, thank you so much. I really appreciate what you're doing, uh, providing a tremendous service uh, for people.